You are listening to Take Back the Fight, a podcast that explores modern feminism in Canada and the digital age. I'm your host, Nora Loretto, and this podcast is based on a book that I wrote with the same name. This podcast is brought to you by Fernwood Publishing, and we are a proud part of the Harbinger Media Network. Episode 5, Social Movement Organizing. If you've listened to me over the course of the past couple of episodes, or maybe you listened to my other podcast that I co-host with Sandy Hudson called Sandy and Nora Talk Politics, you'll know that I talk a lot about social movement organizing. I've been involved in social movement organizing for a long time, and when I first was approached to write this book, the only way that I could look at feminism was through a social movement lens. That is through the lens of people coming together, feminists coming together, defining their priorities and putting pressure on different aspects of society. So putting pressure on politicians, on the economy, on other civic actors, on businesses and within their communities. Back in 2013, I wrote a book called From Demonized to Organized, Building the New Union Movement. I learned many things in the process of writing that book. The first being that you want to pick a really short title because you have to say the title a lot. And when it's long, you start to get mad at the fact that you picked such a long title. (laughs) But I also learned that social movement organizing was not as obvious to me as it was to people who I was talking to and trying to convince about the ways in which we can take action to fight for social change. There was a big clash between generations, and depending on what generation you are part of or what years you came to age, your interaction with social movements and social movement organizing could have been very, very different. And of course, it's not generation dependent. This was also dependent on things like how active you may have been, at what point you decided to get involved in something, or um, maybe you've just never had the opportunity to fight for some sort of social change. But the generational divide was really key. And as I was writing that book, and then after, as I was uh, talking to a lot of people about it, it was pretty amazing just how different understanding the world was between people who were at that time 40 years of age and older versus people who were 40 years of age and and under. And of course, this is an arbitrary-ish measure, but older people, I remembered a Canada that was defined by the welfare state. And key in the welfare state is allowing social activism to operate through social movement structures and social movement organizing. Then you had folks who were younger, and all they knew was a neoliberal uh, and austerity agenda from their government and the message that that neoliberalism had, had placed upon social movement organizing and activism, which is that you don't really need to work with other people. It just takes a, a single person to make a difference. And I talked about that in a, in a previous episode. The reality, though is that we still need social movement organizing. And when thinking through kickstarting or reigniting or creating anything, whether it's a new feminist movement or starting new kinds of organizing for some kind of issue that you care about, it all has to pass through some sort of social movement. And so that's what this episode today is going to talk about. 
social movements, what are they? What can they look like? What have they looked like? And why do they have the kind of strength that is necessary that an individual working on their own simply doesn't have? My first interaction with an organized social movement happened when I was in high school, and I was pretty outside of it. There was a group of kids at my high school who were fighting to raise awareness about the fact that our uniforms were made in sweatshop conditions. And they came up with a campaign where we would uh, unhook the, the threads that held the tags onto our clothes, put them all into a big box and send them off to the industry minister at the time, who was Brian Tobin. It's amazing that I remember any of this. (laughs) And so for a feverish couple of weeks at school, uh, someone came along with scissors or uh, thread hookers to take off everyone's tags and to send them off to Brian Tobin. And it was such a big deal that Street Sense, uh, the, the television show that I know actually played a very big role in radicalizing a lot of young people. Um, they actually filmed a segment at my high school for this action. Now, as I say, I was on the outside of this. I had nothing really to do with organizing it. I definitely cut off all my tags and helped my friends cut theirs off too. But this was not just isolated to a couple of kids at my high school. This was a broader thing um, that was united through any high school that was wearing uniforms made by McCarthy. Now, I went to school in southern Ontario in a public Catholic high school, and uniforms were pretty common. And so they were connected with other people um, at other high schools who were also wearing McCarthy uniforms. It was pretty amazing for me as a 16-year-old to see that kind of collective action. Now, outside of the action, were they were they organizing through meetings? Did they have a, a roundtable or a collective? I, I don't think so. And I don't know. So it is possible that I'm wrong. If anyone who listens to this podcast went to went to my high school the same time as, as I did, feel free to get in touch and let me know. But it was the first time that I saw collective organizing in a way that could transcend one individual doing something on their own. So an individual protest or writing a letter. When I went to university, I was instantly involved in the student movement. And I was instantly involved in the student movement because there was a provincial election and it was the first time I'd be able to vote and I'd be able to vote against Mike Harris. I found myself in an education coalition meeting at uh, my former university, which is X University, formerly known as Ryerson University in Toronto. And through that, I found myself into the world of the student movement. Now, the student movement is an interesting uh, group of people because at the time, it was made up mostly of student unions, uh, clubs, and campus groups that were located all across Canada. And so sometimes you had full student unions who were actively engaged in the campaigns, and sometimes you just had uh, collectives or activist organizations. Through my time in the student movement, I got to see the the pros and the cons of social movement organizing, and, and by and large, the, the, the cons are, are kind of minor, the the kind of cons that exist with any kind of human organizing at all. But the pros are undeniable, uh, allowing people to work together through movement structures, 
that can allow them to bring coherence to their message, that can allow them to put pressure on politicians. These were all really critical aspects of the student movement. And that's where I cut my teeth. That's where I learned what it looked like to have enough power to pressure a government into doing something that you want. And that's where I saw what happens when that kind of organization doesn't exist. And I think there's no better example of it in the student movement than, and actually really in the broader left uh, in Canada, than the student strikes in 2012, where tens of thousands of students went on strike and their strike actions were so powerful that they managed to shut down the city of Montreal several times and in the end, they ousted the government of Jean Charest, the liberal government of Jean Charest. And, and you know, just to, you know, that was nine years ago now. I saw something very recently, I think in the past week, that said because of that action, Quebec students have all saved uh, something like $1,400 or $1,700 per year because the, the, the proposed hike, fee hikes that, uh, that were fought that did not happen uh, never did come back. They never did happen, even though the liberals would eventually be reelected and rule for a couple mandates after that. As I explored in the last episode, digital organizing has had a very big impact on social movement organizing, and so has neoliberalism. And I'm going to explore what that impact has looked like and how the digital age has shaped and shifted how we interact with one another through social movement organizing. But first, I started my my chapter with this, and I think it's really important to talk about this before I talk about social movements in a more theoretical way. I want to talk about the struggle to win maternity leave. The campaign to win maternity leave is one of those struggles that today the history is not very well known. It came out of many, many years of feminists organizing in society and in their workplaces, and it was only made possible because the social movement pressure that had been placed on unions, on the workplace, and on governments was finally enough to force such a massive demand that would cost billions of dollars, really, to become something that was actually a point of pride for, for, for Canada, certainly as we look uh, or compare ourselves to the United States. You know, today, maternity leave is kind of a given. It's certainly under attack, and it's, and it's under attack now than it, more than it has been in the last couple of years. But it still remains as one of those benefits that many Canadians can expect to get. And, you know, depending on where you are, uh, sometimes those benefits are, are also extended to the non-birthing parent, like in Quebec, where something like 75% of, of, of the non-birthing parent actually takes uh, parental leave, which is pretty amazing. I mean, we have a public system in, in, in Quebec that doesn't exist in the rest of Canada, which is another example of things that a social movement could be fighting for. But back in 1979, activists were still fighting to get anything that looked like maternity leave. And so I'm going to read from my book, and these are my words as I describe how this all happened. In 1979, activists won the first major breakthrough that would lead to system-wide parental benefits. A coalition of Quebec public sector unions called the Common Front won 20 weeks of fully paid maternity leave, 10 weeks for parents who adopted a child, and five days for paternity leave. 
Two years later, the Canadian Union of Postal Workers went on strike and their central demand was paid maternity leave. No doubt they drew inspiration from the Quebec workers' victory in 1979. Cup W's 42-day strike resulted in the first government negotiations that won paid maternity leave. The response from media, politicians, and business leaders was overwhelmingly negative. They knew that if postal workers could win this, maternity leave would spread. They won it, and it spread like wildfire. The key part about how social movement pressure can, can, can deliver these kinds of victories is that nothing is ever static, and victories are always building on top of, of themselves. Cup W is one of the unions in Canada that has a very militant past, militant in the French sense, which is very activist, where many of their strikes have resulted in really important material improvements. And the maternity leave decision was was widely seen as this breakthrough in the rest of Canada for the gold standard to be set of what maternity leave benefits should look like. And eventually, with continued pressure from social movement organizing, maternity leave benefits start getting written into provincial employment legislation. It wasn't as if it took one individual. It wasn't as if it took a government that understood that maternity leave was was the right thing to do. It was social movement pressure. And without knowing that, it's easy for people to imagine that something like maternity leave or parental benefits were just given to people from on high, from a benevolent government or a benevolent CEO who understood intimately the need to give parents this time off. And the state wants us to think like that's how this works. Businesses want us to think that that's how this works as well. They don't want us to know that this kind of win is only possible through social movement organizing and a social movement that is diverse enough in its tactics to be able to figure out what exactly is needed at what time or what moment. And so with the maternity leave strike, a key strategy was to fight this out through the workplace regime, through collective bargaining, because you had the, 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 the common front in Quebec starting that in 1979, followed by Cup W, two unions that, you know, unions are not, they're, in 1979, as of today, they are still uh, male-dominated institutions. But the pressure that feminists were able to put on internally to say that this is an issue that's important enough to go on strike over that one, that was what was what was necessary. And if we take the wrong lesson, which is that maternity leave was popular and and obvious and something that just was kind of inevitable, then then we completely erase the struggle that's inherent with it. And that struggle, figuring out how to build the struggle, who's around the table, where that struggle should play out, that's what you get when you create a social movement. And so now I'm going to talk about what is a social movement and what can they look like? Because I'm not talking about a specific kind of organization or federation or cluster of collectives or organizations, nor am I prescribing what a social movement organization needs to look like. I'm, I'm talking more generally. As I say many times in the book, and as I will say and have said and literally just said on this podcast, I'm not prescribing something in particular. I don't have in my mind what it is that we need. But what I do in Take Back the Fight is I explore what social movements give us to be able to then create that kind of pressure necessary to change political or corporate minds. 
keeping in mind that when I say change minds, I mean force their minds to change, not just convince them that these are smart things to do. And so in the book, I write this. Structures can take on many different forms, but there are key elements that enable a movement structure to effectively advocate for the movement's demands. Whether a movement organization is membership-based, organizational-based, a roundtable, a network, or a combination of these, the most important is that there are people who are dedicated to watching and responding to political changes, who are constantly engaged in struggle, who are doing research, and who have formed expertise on the issues, and who have some kind of formal engagement, i.e., the structure doesn't rely on the time and availability of volunteers alone. The structure should have access to resources, both physical and financial, to be able to sustain work over a period of time. It should be able to welcome new members and respond to public need. Space is often something that can be donated by allied organizations. Sometimes it's just an office within the walls of a supportive group. Sometimes organizations are able to raise enough money from the supporters to afford a lease on a modest location. Financial resources can be more difficult, as being beholden to funding from government can make radical activism difficult. But there are options for financial support community fundraising, membership dues, or donations from well-resourced organizations like trade unions. The most important details about how a structure should operate, how decisions should be made within it, and how power should be divested or shared must be decided by internal debates that happen within a social movement. And I'm going to stop here because I want to explore that difference between social movement, social movement organizing, and social movement organization. Now, a social movement is, is something that comprises all things within a tendency. And so that's going to include social movement organizations. Imagine NAC and then also collectives, feminist collectives that are fighting gender-based violence. They would all be part of the social movement of feminism. But you also do need to have those organizations within that, that, that movement to be able to then bring some sort of structure or accountability or democracy or location for debate or location for discussion to be able to feed into the larger movement. I like to think of it as an ecosystem. You know, you've got like a bog, I guess, or a pond. <laughs> and the pond has a lot of living elements in it that all must work together to create this ecosystem. When we get too tied down on questions of like unrepresentative leadership or the way that neoliberalism has transformed social movements and we've got self-appointed leaders, we forget that these, that these movements need lots of different players within them because if they don't have lots of different players within them, there's going to be a limited debate, less involvement of people and therefore less diversity, diversity in every way that you can think of, of, of what diversity means. And then maybe you do have some sort of national uniting structure that can help bring sense to the fact that we're operating in this completely dysfunctional, inefficient federalist system that requires not only us to work very locally and municipally, but also provincially. And sometimes our provinces are small and that's manageable. Sometimes our provinces are giant and very, very difficult. And then we also have to work federally because our politicians play off each other. They play off the province to, to pass off responsibility from the federal government. And so we have to be able to, to, to operate on all three levels if we're going to be able to sidestep the fact that politicians are always using federalism as an excuse to not do anything. Creating something like this is really, really difficult, but it is so critical because if we have individuals in the social movement that 
are paying attention to the news, that are always trying to find new opportunities for people to get involved or make comment or call out politicians or business leaders or, you know, seize the moment. There's going to be people who are paid to do that, that it doesn't rely on someone starting a hashtag or calling a rally. But if someone does start a hashtag or call uh, calls a rally, then you have this broader movement structure where people can say, oh, this is amazing. Welcome to the movement or, you know, this is this is a place where your your hashtag or your ideas can get amplified. They can get pushed down through other organizations. And because we've got our hands all over society, we are going to be able to fight uh, against gender based violence or uh, for better uh, reproductive justice services through labor negotiations, through changing the Employment Standards Act, through um, fighting for other issues like food security or against poverty, right? Being able to make those kinds of connections because, of course, sexism and patriarchy are deeply entwined with all of the other forms of oppression within our society. But most importantly, creating a space, a social movement space, gives us a location to have discussion and it's a location that isn't just like Instagram, right? It's a look, it's an actual physical location, whether or not that physical location is meeting in real life or is meeting together through Zoom or whatever, or a hybrid, it still anchors us into, into something that is tangible and that exists. Again, here's a passage from Take Back the Fight. Whether or not an individual, a collective, or organization decides to work within or outside a large movement structure doesn't make one more or less important than the other. The interplay of debate and competing strategies within a movement is a sign of a robust movement with enough activists and space for individuals to choose the path that works best and appeals most to them. Often, it's the pressure from outside a movement structure that poses the most intense and convincing argument to change something about how a movement structure itself works. Collectives, smaller organizations, and individual activists can identify failures of the movement structures. They can focus on campaigns in a more intense and localized way. They can bring concerns of a specific group to the larger movement. They can press for accountability. In the labor movement, the role of radical labor activists outside of formal labor structures or as confrontations internally to the status quo help to pull the labor organizations further to the left and closer to average people. The debate about which strategies and tactics to employ and where to dedicate one's energy is what forms the backbone of a fighting social movement. Internal dissent and external pressure on a social movement organization play different roles. Inside a strong and active social movement structure, there must be ways to express and contend with dissent. This is where movement democracy is so important. Competing tendencies need to have a location to debate what is it that puts each tendency at odds with one another. Whether this is through general assemblies, a delegated voting structure, an executive, a collective, or whatever, having a location at all is critical to maintaining a social movement. When democracy within a movement weakens, activists can use the democratic levers available to them to try and improve it. When there's a lack of representative leadership, systemic or structural racism, cultural clashes based on regionalism or language, or a divisive issue that divides feminists, internal movement structures should serve the movement's membership and allow for a location to mitigate and hold these debates. If these elements don't exist, if there's nowhere to hold a debate, no location for accountability, no measure to confront leadership, no way to ensure decisions are democratic, then a movement lacks a critical method of expression. 
I think that this is the absolutely most important part of why social movement organizing requires formal structures and informal collectives and, and other kinds of groupings of people, because that interplay of, deba- of debate is so critical. If we learn how to debate amongst ourselves, our debates get stronger and we can convince people who are not yet a member of our movements And we can convince people who oppose us and we can make arguments that can be convincing in some cases to to people who hold power. But if we don't have those spaces, there's nowhere for an average person to say, oh, I know, I want to get involved in something and then just get involved. There's nowhere for someone to be able to learn the history of something like maternity leave and understand, oh, wow, from from where I am today to where I want to go tomorrow is going to take building a, 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 a comprehensive fight back that includes a lot of different people. These structures can be so helpful. And if in, if you look at the history of social movements in Canada, in North America and around the world, they always pass through people coming together and organizing in some way. And the digital age has taken from us the the memory, the collective memory of the of the struggles that went into winning certain things that have become mundane within society. There is a risk that is inherent in in organizing through formal structures in a neoliberal era. And so for the rest of this podcast, I'm going to talk about that risk and how activists, feminist activists, or any kind of activists, depending on what movement we might be talking about, needs to work really hard to mitigate the, the threats that come with the not-for-profit industrial complex. If you've worked in the not-for-profit sector, you have surely come across the term the not-for-profit industrial complex. It's the idea that the professionalization of activism through not-for-profits is becoming more and more common. And it's, I, I mean, Usually when people use this term, they're, they're arguing that not-for-profit professionalization is, is, is hurting or harming progressive organizing in some way. When I was writing Take Back the Fight, I had a conversation with Heather Jarvis, who is one of the founders of the Slut Walks in Toronto. And Heather was telling me about the internal debates that they were having within Slut Walk about what to do with this movement after it caught fire and traveled around the world. Did they turn it into a not-for-profit? Did they turn it into a charity? Did they not turn it into anything? And Heather was saying that it was quite clear that no one wanted to go the direction of not-for-profit because they didn't want to fall into the traps that come with being a not-for-profit. And it's something that I think anybody who's involved in social movement organizing has had to confront one time or another Certainly, I'm involved in organizing uh, that we've been resisting for years incorporating because we don't want to professionalize our group. We're a group of volunteers. And not only does no one have the time to deal with the bureaucracy required to incorporate, we don't feel like there's any reason that we would have to incorporate other than to be able to get grants, which we do need to be able to operate what we do. This is a really difficult question for a lot of activists, and we don't necessarily talk about how the not-for-profit industrial complex has, has become the norm and why. 
the why is really important because it is tied back to neoliberalism and the state doing what it can to make progressive action less effective through bureaucracy, through professionalization, and through tricking activists into thinking that this is the only way that things can operate. And I say tricking. I mean, sometimes it's like literally the only way you can operate because, as I say, if you need certain kinds of grants, you you have to be a not-for-profit. And so sometimes you find yourself being forced into doing it that way, as I also might be currently <laughs> with another project that I'm working on. More information about that later. Well, I was researching the origins of how the professionalization or the not-for-profit industrial complex in Canada came to be. I came across the writing of Brian Evans and John Shields, two professors from X University who I know and who I've actually had, uh, both of them at separate times. And something that they wrote in a, a working paper from 2000 looked at how neoliberalism was restructuring governance and civil society, and they observed, quote, Nonprofit organizations are being asked to perform an enhanced role, not only in the delivery of quote-unquote public services, but also in a restructured state-societal relationship. Five years later, Evans Shield and Ted Richmond wrote uh, further, quote, community involvement in nonprofit service provision is being replaced by professional management with increased, quote, accountability, unquote, to the state. So not only do we have a change in how a lot of social movement organizations were funded in the 1990s and the 2000s, but there was also this new regime of, of legislative control over not-for-profits. And so at one on one hand, you have not-for-profits, their mandates becoming really, really important as the state underfunds public services. So a lot of times people will come together and say, we are missing this. We're missing books at the local uh, library. We're missing some sort of public service. Uh, we need to provide uh, this set of, of community members this service. And it's stuff that the state either used to do or should do. People are coming together to do it themselves. You know, during the pandemic, we would have called this mutual aid. When your not-for-profit starts to service people uh, and, and, and actually give them the necessities that the state is refusing to give them, then all of a sudden the stakes become really high. You have to have really efficient management. You have to have excellent financial controls. You probably need to have several staff. Maybe those staff people need to have certificates or diplomas, and then you get the increasing credentialization within the not-for-profit sector. Or maybe you've got other kinds of specialized services. Maybe you provide uh, counseling or relief or respite or food, whatever, whatever it is. You can see just how quickly not-for-profit organizations and individuals involved with them become at the mercy of the professional demands of what kind of service they're trying to deliver. Now, this is not the case everywhere. There's, of course, a lot of wonderful grassroots uh, collectives and organizations doing amazing work that have resisted the, the professionalization trend. But it is very hard to resist. If you've never been involved in a situation like this, it does take a very specific set of people and of skills who consistently resist um, that approach to doing what they're doing. And sometimes the resistance is, is impossible because sometimes you are doing things that require you to have state approval or state oversight or whatever. 
Now, I think we need to be really clear that the increasing professionalization is a tactic of neoliberalism because it puts a ton of expectations and regulations and requirements on organizations that otherwise would have just done their own thing. If we think back to the 1970s and how so many feminist organizations and collectives and services were founded, they received no-strings-attached money to create things from the federal government. That program didn't last very long, but it wasn't until the 1990s and 2000s that this professionalization of the not-for-profit sector turned into what it has become today. All of this puts incredible pressure on social movement organizing and on social movement organizations. Because when a, when a social movement organization finds itself in the feminist movement's a really good example, when it finds itself rescuing people from violent, violent situations, providing frontline services, providing food, providing accommodations to individuals, all of a sudden the ability that that same organization has to advocate to change the policies that are causing the problems that they're seeing every single day arrive at their doorstep, their time becomes very, very thin. And not only does their time become thin, but if they have like five staff people and they need to have someone who's a who's a professional of managing a, a, a space and they need to have counseling professionals, then all of a sudden the staff people get replaced not by activists, but by people who have the credentials to do whatever it is the job is that, it, that that's required. This is a really bad cycle. And this is uh, the sum of it, you know, add this up across uh, c- communities all across Canada. And it creates this thing that is called the not-for-profit industrial complex. The U.S.-based group Insight defines the not-for-profit industrial complex as, quote, a set of symbiotic relationships that link political and financial technologies of state-owning class control with surveillance over public political ideology, including an especially emergent progressive and leftist social movements, unquote. In Canada, if you have a not-for-profit organization or corporation, you have a lot of responsibility to the state to report things to them. You have financial reporting requirements. You have requirements of having bylaws and a very specific membership structure. So if you wanted to have an organization where people supported you but weren't necessarily members, then you were serving other people, but they wouldn't necessarily be members either because you're doing support outreach and then you know people receiving support. Then you're like, okay, so then who's the members of this organization? And then you have to have a board. And this is all defined by, po- by, by legislative policy in the, the federal uh, not-for-profit corporations act in Canada, it gets really, really sticky. And then all of a sudden what you just wanted to do was to have a corporation to be able to, you know, get certain kinds of money or maybe open a bank account. It becomes very, very difficult. And you need to have people who are, who are adept at navigating bureaucracy and, and the state, right? You have to file things every single year. You have to have your board of directors give their, their, their addresses to the government. And that is publicly accessible information. So there's a lot of reasons why, you know, people would avoid wanting to become a not-for-profit. But as I've said already, there's sometimes you just can't avoid it. Seattle-based activist Nisha powell Twagira mukitsa explains how they see the, the, the not-for-profit industrial complex. Quote, 
The NPIC is designed to exploit people of color while enriching the pockets of middle class and wealthy white folks. The industrial complex dilutes grassroots people of color movements by funding white-led not-for-profits to solve social issues while starving people of color organizations of resources. And I think that that's a really important part of this, that the professionalization is also a tool of white supremacy. It's called professionalization. Like it it isn't necessarily professionalization. It's professionalization in the way that the state, our, our colonial and racist state has defined professionalization. And so if you aren't familiar with how bylaws are supposed to read or how the Federal Corporations Act interacts with your organization, you aren't likely going to be the person who manages your your not-for-profit corporation. That's going to leave out a lot of people. And when there are already positions that are very restricted because public funding can be so difficult to obtain, it's going to squeeze out different kinds of people who the norm wants to squeeze out. It's going to privilege white professional, quote-unquote professional, middle-class individuals over-racialized, poor and disabled individuals. And you can see this happening. I mean, there's so many examples of this happening in, in all kinds of social movement organizing. I mention this because I don't want anybody to think that the that social movement organizations in and of themselves are all we need. We always need to be also looking at the ways in which white supremacy and colonialism replicates itself through different kinds of structures within Canadian society and a structure like a not-for-profit that is very legalistic, that is defined by federal law in very specific terms is going to be fraught for social movement activists to be able to engage with. And I didn't even mention in this episode, though I do write about it in the book, how then the state can survey certain organizations. And I, and I write specifically about Cindy Blackstock and the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society and how Cindy has been under surveillance, uh, police surveillance for, for, for many years. And so we have to have debates and we have to come up with creative workarounds to not fall into these kinds of traps that the state has set. The problem, of course, is that the state is very good at setting traps, and it has had 25 years of setting these traps where the left has not really tried uh, to find new ways of organizing in a in a comprehensive way. Most of the women's organizations that can trace their, their existence back before the 1990s are highly professionalized women's organizations, or they're so busy with the work of the state, of the holes within the public service offering that they don't have time to do political activism. They're helping people have their immediate needs met. For the rest of this podcast, I'm going to talk about what we get within social movement organizing that can enrich us and that can build the strength necessary to change minds. And I want you to keep in mind these pitfalls, the way that the state, neoliberalism, and the digital age has distorted or impacted or hidden the ways in which people power can come together and make change. How are we more vulnerable than we've been in a, in a long time to, to infiltration if our organizations have to be subject to certain pieces of legislation or if we are only organizing online? These kinds of questions are going to be raised in future episodes. That's all for this one. If you like what you hear, please share it with every single feminist that is in your life and even the ones who are not. 
This podcast was written, hosted, edited, and produced by me, Nora Loretto. The music is by me as well, except for this, which is Garam Chai by General Khan. This podcast is funded by Fernwood Publishing, and we are a proud part of the Harbinger Media Network. If you want to check out other progressive podcasts on the network, go look at www.harbingermedianetwork.com. I'm earning